This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. We made it to Wednesday. It's also the 12th of May. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. The GOP pushes out Representative Liz Cheney from leadership. Plus, the bonkers market for reselling sneakers. But first, defining a hate crime is today's one big thing. The man accused in the Atlanta spa shootings was indicted on murder charges yesterday. The prosecution says it will be pursuing a hate crime penalty. But how do you define a hate crime? I sat down recently with our resident legal scholar, Harvard Law Professor Noah Feldman, to help us understand the complexity of how you define and prosecute hate crimes. You know, Dr. Janine Bell, who's a professor at University of Indiana Law School, who I had on my podcast, Deep Background, who she spent her whole career on this. Uh, In Dr. Bell's formulation, which I think is correct, a lot depends on how expert the police department is in gathering the evidence that a hate crime existed. And that should be, in her view, the determinative factor. You know, was the crime actually motivated based on hate? And can you prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the crime was motivated based on hate? The other thing to keep in mind that that Dr. Bell pointed out to me is that in many instances, if the punishment for a crime is high enough, let's say you're being charged with first or second degree murder, you can go to jail for life or even be executed in some states, doesn't matter as much whether it's charged as a hate crime. I mean, it's important to recognize hate where it exists, but the punishment will still be very great. We have talked in the past about how hate crimes are so hard to define. We do that almost every time we have a conversation about hate crimes on the podcast. Why? Why is this so hard in the U.S.? It's hard because we don't always differentiate between two different things. Laws that prohibit you from harming another person based on bias or hate which is what a hate crimes law is, and laws that prohibit you from saying something to somebody that's motivated by bias or hate, which is usually called a hate speech law. Now, hate crime laws are constitutional in the U.S. and are not totally uncommon, in fact. Hate speech laws, for the most part, are unconstitutional in the U.S. and are also much more controversial for that reason. So I think there's some inevitable public confusion around those things. And once you clarify that, things make a lot more sense. And the whole idea of a hate crime seems a lot less weird or counterintuitive. How would the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, this was obviously in response to the rising amount of hate crimes and hate incidences against Asian Americans. How would this actually change things? What would it actually do? It's a striking and unusual feature of this act that it starts by saying that because of COVID-19 or in the wake of COVID-19, there's been a dramatic increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. This does not appear to just be an increase in reporting of hate crimes against Asian Americans, but an actual rise in in violence. So that's what what Congress is addressing and responding to. What the law is seeking to do is to effectively make it easier for law enforcement to enforce existing hate crimes laws by giving funding for training and the capacity of local and federal authorities 
to identify hate crimes, to target their performance, and to respond to them with appropriate prosecution. So that's the the general idea of the law. As Noah said, he had a great conversation with Dr. Bell on his Deep Background podcast. I'll tweet out a link to that so everyone can see it. Noah Feldman is a Harvard constitutional law professor and Axios is today's resident legal scholar. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Nyla. In 15 seconds, we're back with Mike Allen on the move to replace Liz Cheney. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Welcome back to Axios Today. House Republicans are voting today to recall Representative Liz Cheney from her number three leadership position. The vote was announced by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who's led the backlash against Representative Cheney for her criticism of former President Trump and his false claims of election fraud. Axios' co-founder Mike Allen is here to catch us up on what this means for Cheney, McCarthy, and the GOP. Hey, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Nyla. What is Liz Cheney betting on here in terms of being willing to give up this leadership position? Well, Liz Cheney's betting on the long term. She's basically betting that she's going to outlive Trumpism. So what you're going to be hearing from her and from her team is this is about something bigger than Donald Trump and the fate about the last election. This is about the truth. This is about the future of the Republican Party. And I have a little news for you. I'm told that even if she loses her leadership spot as expected, that she is going to continue the fight. And, Nyla, I would look for Liz Cheney to be very active in other elections, trying to shape some of those races to be more in her image. And Leader McCarthy is making the opposite bet here, Mike? <laughs> that's, that's right. His is a medium-term bet, and that is that with the support of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's people, that... He could be House Speaker, that he could get the gavel from Speaker Pelosi in January 2023. So that's the McCarthy midterm bet. What does all of this make you think about? I can tell you the conversations I'm having uh, with people all around town, Nyla, is that Republicans think that in the short term, this is a public relations disaster. Like one person framed it for me in a very eye-opening way. They said, that this is a party that just lost. And instead of talking about the future, they're doubling down on what didn't work. You hear a lot of Republicans saying, you know, oh, there's a lot to work with with President Biden this week. But instead, we're talking about kicking a Cheney, no less, out of a Republican leadership position. Axios co-founder Mike Allen. Thanks, Mike. Now I have the best day. Forget Robinhood and trading companies like GameStop and switch to sneakers. The pandemic saw a surge in the rare sneakers resale market. Yes, that is a thing. And it's worth an estimated $10 billion. That's up from $6 billion in 2019. Mike Sykes writes the Kicks You Wear blog and is with us now to break this down for us. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going? 
Mike, how much is the most expensive sneaker that you could resale? The one that comes to mind that I just was looking at was the Paris Dunk. It's a skateboarding shoe. It's reselling for $60,000 right now. And so how did the pandemic change the market? The pandemic did a couple things, right? Like I think it encouraged everyone to find these side hustles, these things that could supplement the income or give them a source of income. On the other hand, you have folks who were just in the house bored trying to find something else to do. And collecting sneakers just became a thing for people. It, it, it's always been a thing, but really for more of a niche audience. I mean, these shoes are so nice. Are people actually ever wearing them? It depends. There there are some folks who wear them. There are some folks who just collect them. And then there are some folks who just really buy into the market to sell. As a sneakerhead, that's sort of frustrating because you want everyone to wear their shoes, but that's just not really the reality of the day. You can read more about this in the Kicks You Wear blog that Mike Sykes writes. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Hey Axios, this is Maggie. I'm usually a very social person and it's just been crazy how I've kind of forgotten how to socialize um, and to be in a group dynamic. Maggie in Minneapolis is one of many of you who told us how you're managing the weird transition back to socializing or working in person. Tomorrow on the podcast, we're going to be talking with an expert about the anxiety many of us are experiencing, starting up quote-unquote normal life again. And we'll hear lots more of your thoughts. If you haven't yet, you can send us a voice memo to podcasts at axios.com telling us what it's been like for you to navigate being close to people again. That's it for us today. For more news before tomorrow, tune into our afternoon podcast, Axios Recap. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.